Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week week slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this wig. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just beaming at me. I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. G'day, I'm Peter Ayers. Welcome to Stages, or welcome back to Stages if you're listening again. If you're a first-time listener, it's lovely to have your company. This is the podcast, of course, that converses with creatives about craft and career, and uh, my guest today is Kay Tuckerman. Originally from Sydney, Kay Tuckerman has carved a niche internationally as a sought-after director, performer, writer and designer. Her directing career has garnered many awards globally and her performing career has seen her headline some of the world's biggest stage productions. Kay has performed on Broadway in Summer, the Donna Summer musical, creating the role of Pete Balotte. Other highlights include Les Miserables, The Boy From Oz and Mamma Mia. She's won multiple awards for her solo performances and can be seen on screen in The Matrix, The Loudest Voice, The Characters and Royal Pains, as well as many shorts, web series and independent features, such as the award-winning The Actor, The Prime, Vandal and Of America. As a designer in Kenya, she was nominated for an African Academy Award for From a Whisper. Kay gained her degree at the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts and directing training at the National Institute of Dramatic Arts. Kay was recently back in Australia and stages caught up with her for a long overdue reunion. Oh God, I hope I get questions right. No, it's good. <laughs> it's not a quiz, Kay. <laughs> Just say it was, and I got them wrong. And um, um, if it was a quiz, you're the specialist subject. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this might be worse if I got it wrong. <laughs> oh, I might look at some revisionist history and <laughs> for the hard bits. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kay Tucker person, it's lovely to see you. Oh, thanks, thanks. It is so nice to be here. <laughs> you're back in Australia, um, of course, residing in New York at the moment. Yeah. Is that home now? Mm, that's a good question. I. Look, I've been there, what, 12 years now? Two years on the road and then 10 years in New York. Um, so I don't know. And I was actually talking to the excellent Tony McGill, who's now over at Brent Street, um, the other day about the psychology of the global nomad and how you you travel so much. And I think the Aussies generally do travel so much, you know, either with tours, with shows around Australia, Asia, New Zealand, or then they go to the West End and then they do all the tours around England and Europe, or they go to America and they do all the tours around America and stuff. And there's this aspect of the global nomad psychology whereby you, you are excited to be wherever you're going to be, but at the same time you belong wherever you put your hat, yet belong nowhere. Yeah. So it's, it's quite a, a complex... Um, you know, mindset, I think. So I, I'm not sure. I'm not even sure, like, about 
where home is anymore. I'm not sure even if, you know, wherever you put your hat. I, I don't even know if that would be my home. I don't know. I just keep on rolling, rolling with the flow of the river and rolling with the punches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it's a wonderful adventure. Yeah. Um, and until you're able to, I guess, buy property or mm. buy furniture or that's when you can start to perhaps uh, construct or design a home. But, um, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're just happy. Oh, I'm just doing my thing. Yeah. Got a cat. <laughs> have cat will travel. Have cat will travel. Or actually have dog will travel. Have cat. It's a bit harder. <laughs> Especially if they're as dumb as my cat. Right. Like, mind you, he wouldn't know where he was. So that's all right. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, welcome back to Australia. For Thank this you. Brief time. And it's always lovely to be here, you know. And I know when I was back uh, pre pandemic and, you know, had the opportunity to do Claire's Kitchen and Adelaide Cabaret Festival and um, go up to Queensland and do Wicked at, with Matt Ward up at Hoda. I just it it's just glorious whenever I have a chance to be home and to either see shows or perform here like there's something about performing in Australia either as a performer yourself or watching the Aussies there's something so thrilling about the level of discipline and skill and joie de vie and passion and joy that you see like you can tell an Australian performer on stage there's something just beautiful about that energy is it tough being away from family, I mean, I find it tough. I'm, and my mum is only in another state. Yours <laughs> is in another country. I yeah, I, yeah, it's a really good question because, and I know during the pandemic, when you, you couldn't get home, and I know um, like I have a couple of friends in New York that lost their parents during their t- that time, could not get home. Even even going to you know the embassy in Australia and begging for some sort of you know leniency or compassionate like visa to get into the country, they couldn't. And to know that that you know was their choice to live in another country, now impacted by a pandemic, impacted by global travel rules, meant that you know at the end of days of their you know their mum or dad's life, they didn't get to you know, experience that no matter how painful it was. But And so, it, yeah, it, it is hard. It is hard when, you know, you, you come back and, you know, you see nieces and nephews. Like, I saw mine last night and they're like, oh, you're 30? You're 22? <laughs> it was like, and then, of course, the next part of that is, how old am I? Oh, my God. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. At least technology now uh, allows us to, you know, it's no longer the, the STD phone call. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we can have Zoom and, and, and use that frequently. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, remember the STD phone calls or the, the first mobile phone calls that were like $300 a minute and you just go, got to go, got to go, because you knew the bill was, you know. Was or with the long through. distance phone call, you know, mum said, oh, there's the pips, you better go now. <laughs> You've got to go. Clock over to another 10 minutes. I know. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, like video calling has, you know, made such a world of difference. And, you know, I know whenever I talk to my mum, she'll just be like, oh. First of all, she was worried about an iPad. But then she's like, oh, my God, this is the best thing ever. Like, to be able to see someone's face. And I'll never forget the first time we actually connected via Zoom, like via, um, what's it called, FaceTime. She was like, oh. I can see your face and it's just like it's so simple and wholesome and sweet that you yeah. just go oh my god this is you know it's something that you know younger people are used to but for an older person to be able to connect like that it's really lovely and really important well you know the, the changes that occur in a lifetime I mean yeah we, we certainly know that time before mobiles and uh, at uni where you'd go down to the phone box once a week and that would be the phone call home 
Yeah. Um, oh, no. Yeah, I mean, I got my first cell phone in 95, and I was doing Jesus Christ Superstar, and our out-of-town tryout, so to speak, was um, was up in Newcastle, and I was staying um, just out of Newcastle, so I was driving along the freeway every night after the show, and I, I was like... I should get one of those mobile phones so that if anything should happen on the freeway, I could at least call an emergency vehicle or something. But that's why I got it. Not to, right. not like now when it's just like, I mean, it's like it's attached to you. Yeah. you know. Yeah, it is. An, it's an extension, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and people, <laughs> just if they lose it or, or um, it breaks or something, just Can't have, have a breakdown. That's <laughs> just, yeah. They do. You cannot function because your yeah. life is in there, yeah. you know? yeah. Yeah, and they're saying, I mean, they're saying, I think the psychology of the cell phone is even if you have, so say you're working or rehearsing, then you have like your 10 minute, you know, required break as per your contract. So of course now people go outside, the first thing they do, pick up their cell phone, on their phone, on their phone. The psychology is that they've been on their phone for like 10, 15 minutes, they come back into a rehearsal room, even though they're now disconnected from it, psychologically it takes 10 to 15 minutes to undo that connection to the cell phone so then people are not present in the room for another 10 15 minutes wow so it's bizarre yeah, yeah. bizarre that addiction to a device yeah um we, we were sharing when you arrived that that beautiful experience you know we're talking about changing technology also <laughs> of cds and, yeah. and, and dvds and um, lps dare i say dare i say um, where you know that, that wonderful period of time where we were talking musical theatre and the latest Sondheim show would come out and you'd it was an event you'd go down to the your brashes or your you know um, whatever yeah. your music to Alan's music this yeah. was uh, Sanity um, yeah. this was long before um, JB Hi-Fi <laughs> and um <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or what was the big record store in America? Um, there was Tower, there Tower was Colony, yeah, yeah, there was, yeah. yeah. And yes, every trip you'd, you'd go and records. you'd, you'd uh, buy a few LPs. And it was an yeah. event, you'd take it home and you'd listen to every lyric as it played on the turntable. Yeah. And do you remember too, you would often have like an insert into their LP cover or the insert for the CD would have all the lyrics printed and you could either just read along or sing along with that and the, it, yeah we were talking about the commitment it takes to actually set aside that length of time to actually listen and go back if you've missed something or listen for specific accidentals and harmonies and and how much you know you connect with something in that way whereas now it's like redu the reductiveness of society the reductiveness via social media of like like dislike heart. now we've got maybe what heart laugh care wow sad you know that's what it's been reduced to as opposed to did you spend three hours listening to the brand new Sondheim musical or brand new you know whatever offering it was and yeah there's something about that that in the way you connect as a human being the way you connect to the storytelling the way you connect as the artist mm. to that as opposed to I don't like it and it's like <laughs> well, what, what's that yeah. what conversation is there if it's just like like dislike yeah. Yeah. Mm. I, I was pondering uh, the last time that we actually caught up IRL um, in real life that is <laughs> uh, social media can be quite um, uh, 
can throw a, a cloud over you know reality. And when did I actually see K before? Because you know we, we can interact on on the facce libre um, uh, from time to time and Instagram. But I, yeah. I I would nominate that it was in the audition room of that original production of The Lion King. I would say that that is 100% correct. Uh, so we're going to go back to 2002? Yeah, 20 years 20 ago. Years ago. 20 years ago. 20 years ago. I was um, at six foot two, a little tall for a warthog. You were too tall for a warthog, I'm sorry, and way too tall for a meerkat. Anything um, in the jungle, anything. really? Yeah, no, but you were tremendous, I, I recall. And I think it's an interesting process casting, um, you know, because I'd been at, at NIDA the year before that and I'd been on the Olympics the year before that. And um, I'd, when I graduated from, from NIDA, I went on to um, Matrix and The Lion King. And um, it was such an amazing experience, an amazing privilege to be in the room with performers um, that way and to... Um, appreciate the level of care it takes in the casting room um, from that panel from that table the level of care for everyone who walks into that room has prepared material they may or may not nail it or absolutely screw it up in that moment and and all I can ever think it's like I have a friend who's an Olympic runner and he recalls he was on the uh, 4x4 relay team and he recalls being on that and, and the margins were so tight and he slipped on the on the block as he took off and in that he kept running as fast as he could but in that moment he knew he'd blown it he'd blown it for himself he'd blown it for the team and it's the first time i ever thought it is like elite level sport like preparing in you know, getting a whole like audition package preparing that material and sure like you know we were saying that you know you can jump online now you can look at productions you can study material you can find the the exact scene for the audition package they've given you you can practice as much you can you can go in that room and for some reason you know you get catch in your throat and you sing terribly you you just don't know and I'm just like my god the 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 respect I have for performers preparing putting themselves on the line by walking into that room, doing their very best. If they mess it up, holding their, <laughs> holding their, themselves together until they walk out of the room and get in their car and just go, <laughs> or call their agents and go, I've blown it or whatever. Mm. And um, I, I just, yeah, I remember watching people in that room and just thinking how brilliant every single person was. And I think to anybody listening who's, auditioning and worried that people on an audition panel are going oh that person was terrible I never ever when I was at Sydney Theatre Company casting and when I was at casting for Disney Theatricals Australia never once was there any talk of somebody there was one he'd gone to a nightclub the night before um, so may have been still peaking um, while he auditioned <laughs> it was very entertaining but in the wrong way so don't do that but anybody who's ever worried that an audition panel is like out there to you know, to cut someone down or something. My experience was like just high level of respect and it's just always a shame that you see people who are so talented, so prepared, so wonderful and deserving of a spot and ultimately everything just gets chipped back to the one person and the cover and or the standby who's going to get that track, you know? And it's like, yeah, so I'm sorry you're too tall for a, for a war hog. <laughs> well, you're, sorry. You're, you're able to, to bring great empathy into the, into the audition room because you had been a performer yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and as you say, you want, want everybody that comes in to be the person for the job. But we've all been in those audition rooms where we haven't 
particularly felt welcome or, you know, nobody ever looks up and they're just writing and you think, are they focused on me? Are they doing their lunch order? Um, <laughs> what? I mean, yeah. uh, you're, you're quite vulnerable when you walk into an audition room any, yeah. anyway and your mind is yeah. perhaps working overtime and assuming things that aren't really happening. Yeah. Um, you know, that resting bitch face um, <laughs> is really just concentration from the, the audition panel. 100%. Yeah. yeah, I know that we would look at performers like literally eagle-eyed and... Um, you know, you just go, my God, if there was a mirror on us or a camera on us right now, like that level of concentration to see, are they too tall? Are they, you know, can they do it? Could they sing that top note that we need to hear? Can they, could they play opposite this person that, you know, we're looking to, like all of these combinations of a jigsaw puzzle. And yeah, it can lead you to be <laughs> looking quite intense. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, um, it is, it's an interesting thing. And of course now, you know, Everything, not everything, we're starting to go back into the room, but the whole self-tape mm. thing, and you do feel like you're acting or singing into a vacuum. You listen back to a singing self-tape, and there's only so much a phone can do um, in terms of recording, you know, a big belty song. So this is a whole different ball game too, and then wondering, did they even watch my you know tape did they not did they did I look terrible on camera oh but I'm better in the room like there's all of these worries too but I think the more you can um get out of the way and just simply put your best foot forward mm. prepare what you you know if it's a new piece prepare what you want to bring to the piece and if it's an existing piece do every bit of research you possibly can to be able to sadly replicate you know, as much because it's now like you know a, a package product. The so franchise. It is the franchise. It's the you know if it's now set as a as a Big Mac, you got to do the Big Mac. You can't add beetroot, <laughs> like you know. Well, you could add a bit of flair, well, that's, but <laughs> that's a very Australian hamburger. The beetroot. It is a yeah. <laughs> it is the beetroot exactly. So look, if you want to bring bring flair to your auditions, just just add a bit of beetroot. <laughs> That's my advice. Thank you. That's my uh, my hook line. The performer's life, sadly, mm. is often about a lot of rejection. Mm, it is. What's your advice on, on, on handling that rejection? You know. Gosh, it's such a good question. Um, because here in Australia, in some ways, you can prepare a little better for it. Because say if say if your your bag is musical theatre, and you may have in Australia one to four auditions a year. And those wonderful auditions are months apart. You can almost prepare yourself for that audition and then when you don't get it, you know, have a cry, bash a wall, scream and say how terrible people are, whatever, and then move on. And you go. by the time the next audition comes along, you just go, I'd love to do that. Like, it's gone, you know. But say in, in America, I mean, there's been times I heard like five auditions a day. And you're either trying to do all these self-tapes at home or you're running from studio to studio. You're trying to look at what material's next. You may or may not have had enough time to learn the material. And you've just got to show up. You've just got to go, I'm here now, show up. And then if you don't book it, you just got to move on. It's part of it. It is a really interesting balancing act because you do have to be like in boots and all. You have to convince your brain that this is it, you're gonna book it, you're gonna do, and then on the like click of a fingers, blink of an eye, you have to go, oh, no, who cares? I'm, and you, it's, 
the human brain it can't function that quickly like the neuroplasticity within the amygdala of the human brain cannot process what is fact and what is fiction what is truth what is what is false it, it just can't it just doesn't know so in some ways you have that like as the upper hand you just go oh, i can just trick the brain into thinking whatever but it is sitting in those moments where you just go god i messed up again or if you do a perfect audition and it doesn't pan out like when you start second guessing but just enjoy the process and it's a natural reaction to have a grieving process yeah. after after a loss yeah whether you lose your mobile phone yeah. or whether it's a, a pet or whether it's yeah, a parent yeah. um it's yeah. it's how you um uh deal with that grieving process and and how long you feel you need to yeah. um live yeah. within it yeah yeah um, yeah so losing a role you know, it could yeah. be a month or yeah. it could be, you know, half a day. Well, and I remember... If it's sensible, it's half a day. It's half a day, exactly. Yeah. And, but I remember, and I'm not sure if you remember this with, with Lion King, but that audition process went on for, oh. I think, 18 months. Yes. Yeah. And I think the people who were called in the most were called in 13 times. So there were people who were doing this, and I would get panic calls just going, I've been called in again, what have I done wrong? I've done something wrong, what have I done wrong? It's like, no, 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 don't, don't change anything. They just want to remind themselves of you. They want to see you again doing exactly what you've done and just do that. Everything is going to be on point. But it's just that they're, they're casting like in Europe, they're casting in New York, they're casting the American tour, they're casting everywhere and they've got all these people in their heads that they're trying to do this jigsaw puzzle. They just need to know that you're who they thought you were, do exactly what you did again and everything's going to be golden no 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 no. But there must be something it's the 13th time I've had to audition with the same material it must be and the level the way that you know again it's the amygdala in the brain the fight or flight or freeze mechanism whereby this experience is either like hi we'd love you to come into the room and audition it's either like no I don't want to or freeze like oh god oh god or you know it's or you just go there's there's no need to trigger this like this response it's just welcome to the room do the material thanks very much it's business and I think it's one thing that the Americans do very well in in Australia it's still very much show business whereas I think in America there's much more business show so this is a business you have every right to prepare this material ask for an audition ask what time change the time if needs be rock up do your business of show and go, thank you, that's what I'm doing, and walk out of the room with your head held high. Whereas here it's like, oh, isn't it exciting? Oh, my God. Which is beautiful. I love that. But the notion of business of show, this is a legitimate business. You have a legitimate right to be a dancer, a singer, an actor, a a triple threat, performer, whatever you are in your creative bent. You have every right to walk into that room, present yourself as a business entity, and say, I'm worth money to you. Pick me because I'm worth money to you. I will show up. I'm professional. And here it's like, piss off. Who are you? <laughs> like, you know, yeah, you wouldn't behave wow. like that. That's a great observation, you Kate. Yeah, yeah. You just, well, you, you know, and here in Australia, it's like there's such a beautiful energy and a camaraderie. Well, it's a small industry, really, isn't it? Yes. Really? Everyone knows everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and in the US, there's so much more competition. There's so much more um, focus on being the best. Whereas here you can be the best, but you know you wouldn't walk around saying it. You know, you just go. Oh, That's right. right. Oh, You'd be shot, shot down yeah. if you shot yeah. down in flames. Yeah. You know, yeah. you wouldn't go. Yeah, I can sing a top E flat. Yeah, <laughs> you go. Piss off. Who are you? <laughs> and you. Whereas in America, they're like, yeah, 
I have the best belted E-flat in America. And you go, oh, actually you do. You know, so the, the awareness of skill set and what they are best at, what they're working on, their ability to praise someone who's doing incredible work. It's, it's a really fascinating difference. And I think both are equally valid. Mm. And it, the perfect blend is the, the mix of the two. Mm. You know? so, so let's go right back. And, and when did it all begin for little Kay? When, when, <sighs> were, you, when were you bitten by the bug? And like, uh, oh, here we are. Cast your mind back. <laughs> Betty Davis. Look, I, I don't come from a performing family no. at all. Um, my mum's a nurse. My dad's a teacher. My brother's a homicide detective. I wanted to be a hairdresser. Um, that was my dream job. I had terrible eczema, so I couldn't work with the products. And um, the dermatologist, when I was nine, was like, well, you can't be a hairdresser. Pick something else. And I was like, what? What do you mean? Like, my life ended at nine. And um, so it was around that time that uh, my dad came home and said, um, we're going to go and see a show. And my brother and I were like, it's a show. You know, so my dad had tickets to Annie. Off we went to see Annie. My brother thought it was the worst thing he'd ever experienced in his life. And I was like, clearly, that's what you do. You yeah. just go and be Annie. Yeah. I didn't really know what it was to be a performer or, you know, what theatre really was. Was this an original production with Hayes yeah. Gordon and Jill Perryman? Yes, yes. Nancy Hayes, yep. Kevin mm-hmm. Johnson. Yep, and my friend, and then during Superstar, I worked with Garby Shawnegg, who, you know, the brilliant Gabrielle Shawnegg, who was in every single thing, but she was the Annie that I saw. Yeah. And I remember working with her and going, I'm going to talk to you because you're Garby Shawnegg, you're, <laughs> you're Annie. <laughs> And so, yeah, and I was just like, oh, yeah, clearly I, I'll just do that. Yeah, yeah. And then I heard that there was auditions for Sound of Music. And um, I, I, I did an audition for Sound of Music, but Todd Goddard, who's a friend, was in that. Um, Rowana Dempsey was in that. There's a whole bunch of gorgeous people in, in, in Sound of Music. And I remember, you know, only, what, 10 years ago, meeting Rowana and, and Todd and just going, oh, my God, <laughs> you're in Sound of Music. You're like those famous people they're like what are you talking about <laughs> but i remember hearing on the radio about the auditions but formative years and oh formative experiences God. which which yeah stay oh with your lifetime absolutely as, yes, as absolutely mm. and to see those beautiful people up there being just tremendous and um i remember hearing on the radio um about the auditions and lots of children have rocked up to the sound of music auditions and um some child had been interviewed and she'd she'd worn a cape to the audition and I remember thinking how am I ever going to do this I don't have a cape how am I going to audition for shows without a cape I need a cape and I remember thinking I'd learned a song on um you're probably too young for um sing sing together merrily merrily sing when they would have the tannoys in the school classrooms you're gorgeous how and- old do you think I am <laughs> Um, no, I absolutely do. The, the, the ABC Sing book. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Sing, 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 song, sing Little boxes on the hills. All sorts of inch songs. Inchworm, inchworm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Never roller skate in a buffalo herd. That's yes. the one. That's the one. Well, I was planning to sing um, Donna, 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 Donna. On a wagon bound for market. 
here's a calf with a mournful eye. And I remember planning that I was gonna like wipe my face because it was a very, very sad song. So, but I never got to audition for The Sound of Music. So life went on, I started doing um, amateur musicals with- um, Great way to start. Like mm. fantastic, like, and I, I mean, I assume they're still going now. Mm. I was at like the McKellar Musical Society, a society which no longer exists, um, Willoughby, um, and then there was also the theatre company out at Ride. Did and you ever get to do Annie? I never did. No, well, no. Still time. Still time. There's a, there's a Hannigan in you somewhere. <laughs> I know. I, well, that'd be a fun role. <laughs> um, I think last time I auditioned, it was for Lily. Um, so, so we'll see. We'll, we'll put that, we'll touch wood that that still happens because I'd love to play Hannigan. That'd be fun. Unless you want to shave your head. Oh, I, well, listen, these days, you never know. You never know. I played a man on Broadway, so, uh, you yeah, know, we'll maybe... Yeah, we'll talk about that. Oh, yeah. We will. Yeah. But, um, but no, so I... Then just kept doing amateur musicals. I then, you know, I met people like Michelle Guthrie, um, um, people who, um, uh, who uh, Gregory Urizic, Simone Young, Michael Turkish, John Milson was a director at McKellar. And I'm just like, so all these people who had sort of done it all but still involved themselves in community development, which is really cool. So yeah. was Milsey your connection with Whopper? Is that how you found out about Whopper? No, no? I found out about Whopper because I was doing a... Um, I was doing a, a theatre and education play was the first thing. I booked a theatre and education play, uh, a couple of commercials, um, and then my first big show that I booked was Rasputin. And I booked John Ras- English. John English. Yeah. And I wasn't equity at the time. And they advertised for an open call of, of um, performers to audition for Rasputin. They auditioned for Rasputin, I booked it. And I called the union and said, hi, I, you know, I called and said, you know, and I was told if, if, if I had a contract, I could join. And then Equity um, and uh, said, oh, no, 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 this is a mistake, mistake. And they pulled my contract. So, yeah, I couldn't do it. They said, no, 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 Equity members need to be hired before you get a shot. And I was like, oh, so I was devastated at age 17. And um, then I booked The Importance of Being Earnest. So I went, and t- went on tour with that for a year and it was through... The theatre and education play, Marriott Rubs Donnelly played my mother, and she had said, you know, there's this new school open in Perth, so, you know, when you get to Perth with, you know, this show that you're about to do, um, go make an appointment to go and see John Milson. I was like, John Milson? I had never worked with John Milson, but he, you know, he was with this, you know, theatre company. She said, make an appointment, go and see him, go and check out the campus. I think it's, it could be a good match. So that was that. That was the match for that. So... Yeah, when we when we got to Perth um, um, with beautiful Harley Medcalf, who's the producer of Burn the Floor, he set us all up in Subiaco and um, made an appointment to go and see Milson and auditioned at the end of the year and um, and yeah, got in. You must have been there in the very sort of first five yeah, years of the course. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I started in 1990. You know, yeah. So I think Dobbo had been there prior, and um, yeah, Lara, Lara McKay and mm-hmm. Lisa yeah. McKeon. Yep, they were still Tim, Tim Lawson. Lawson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Marty Cruz, um, Danny Campbell Coles, um, Charmaine Clements. They were in uh, third year when I was in first year. So yeah, yeah. Wow. So that was the connection to that. Um, and it's great, isn't it? That I was there in '96. Um, I graduated, so I started in '94. Yeah, so, yeah. So not long after you. Yeah. Um, but it's wonderful to sort of continually meet uh, brothers and sisters who have have studied at the place and yeah. graduated after us. Yeah, you know? yeah, one hundred percent. And yeah. a, and a great team training us too with Milson and Dennis Follington, yeah, and yeah. Derek Bond. Yeah, and certainly that it was um, it was 
you know, I, I think you're right. That thing of when you're a part of something and you see it just keep morphing and shifting, and yet you're all part of the same alumni. You're part of the same cloth, and you're always there to support each other and have great memories and great laughs and stuff. And you know, I guess once I graduated, I you know I was such a no agents wanted me. <laughs> I was a massive loser. It took me ages to get an agent. Why? Because because you were so unique. Do you think, or or they had you know five K Tuckerman types. I don't know. Yeah. I just assumed at the time I was just a massive loser. Right. So I just, <laughs> I just, I don't and know. And so the psychological game begins. It begins yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. And you somehow you get into your head and you just go, I "Must be a massive loser." And it was um, yeah, Penny Williams ended up taking me on. You know, the old battle axe great, Penny great Williams. Penny, yeah. You know, which I mean, now I don't even think you'd be able to agent in the way that Penny agented. You know, or teach in the way Mills taught. I, I would one hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I think there'd be tribunals. <laughs> absolutely, but it, it's it is interesting how you navigate through that world, and um, there's I think there's always going to be highs and lows, as you know, in a career in the arts and. To be able to support each other with, you know, with the lows and to be able to cheer each other on during the highs, I think is really important. And, um, yeah, so, I, you know, I don't know. I just I finally booked Penny. I finally started booking all the shows. Olympics came along, so I worked on the Olympics and went and studied directing and then everything just <laughs> went madness. What was the first gig you scored? Because, you Buddy. Know, Buddy, Buddy Holly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so after, um, after I graduated, um, I almost booked... Um, Return to the, the Return to the Forbidden Planet. It was between me and Tony Perrin. And um, Jacobson called me and said, we just want to call you because we just love... We thought your audition was so fantastic, but you got to understand we're going to go with Tony Perrin. And, you know, how nice to get that call. It was yeah. so lovely. And that was also the conduit to them saying, look, in any way we can help you. you know? And I said, well, actually, I'm trying to get an agent. And they were the ones who connected me with Penny to set up a meeting. So, you know, there was all these little things and and it's funny because these little hurdles or these roadblocks or these things that just seem like devastating somehow open a door to something else and actually you find yourself where you're meant to be. So, you know, I don't know. You've been on the barricades. I've been on the barricades. You've been on a Greek island. I have. Um, you've had maracas in your hands. <laughs> you've been a rocket. I have been a rocket. Um, Lamy's boy from Oz, uh, Dusty yeah. Mamma Mia. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so yeah. chalking up quite a, a resume in Australia. Yeah, yeah. It's really lucky, really lucky. You know, and um, you know, I've been I've been to Jerusalem. I've I've been with Jesus. <laughs> you know, Hosanna Hazan. Hosanna Hazan, indeed, uh, indeed. Yeah. Now, uh, people are thinking, what are they talking what? about? But the music theatre aficionados will, they will identify I our know. illusions, Kate. I know. And if, if they don't know, they should start buying CDs and records. Exactly. <laughs> so the move to New York, what, what brought that about? Mm. Um, you're obviously experiencing uh, success in, in Australia. You just wanted to. I think it had always been the dream. Like so, say take a bite of the big apple. Yeah, yeah. McKellar Theatre Company. Um, so my first amateur musical was Oliver, and I was so bad. Like I, I was talking to some friends yesterday from McKellar, <laughs> and I was not sort of like a potato up the back, sort of going, "What am I doing here? Like what? Why? Why am I doing this?" And um, my my one solo line in Oliver was. Who will buy her sweet red roses? 
dude, like so terrified, so bad. And for some reason I went back to, to do Pippin as my second show and I thought, well, you better, you better do something good because you're terrible. Like, and if you just, if you're going to keep showing up, you can't annoy everybody in this amateur theatre company by being so bad and being this potato up the back. And so, yeah, I, I pulled out a bit of a few swift dance moves and gymnastics moves and, you know, everyone went, oh, you're not a potato. And I was like, oh, thanks. But the man that was involved with McKellar and directed and choreographed Pippin was a hoofer from Broadway and his name was Robert Wells and Robert Wells always spoke about the Big Apple <laughs> and the Broadway. I don't even know what he was talking about but I was just like, I was like 13 I was just like going, yeah, I'm going to do that. Yeah. So I'm going to do, I'm going to go to Broadway. So I guess that seed was planted when I was 13. Um... And in some ways, in some, I guess the psychology was that I was so bad and such a potato and this man planted this seed about, you know, Broadway's the goal. And so Broadway became the goal, you know, and it, it didn't even compute at that time that you needed a visa to go there. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. that didn't that didn't compute. So, um, so yeah, just gradually, gradually, gradually. Um, and, of course, the, the Yanks invented the musical theatre form. So... You know, you want to go and conquer it in that, its homeland. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, when we see the British musicals, it's come from, you know, a foundation in musical. And when you see the American, the real Broadway musicals, it's all that foundation in vaudeville. And um, and then, you know, the development of that art form to, you know, the nth degree. And, and when you see the best of the best Broadway musicals, it's just like, my God, the Broadway yeah. dancers, there's nothing like them. Like, I agree, unbelievable. I agree. So how do you get a visa or a green card? So yeah, it was it was a really interesting turn of events, as as often happens in my life. I had been um, in Africa designing films. I had come back to Australia to do the Adelaide Cabaret Festivals. I'd gone back uh, to um, had gone up to Macau to do some corporates, and then over to Nairobi again to do some films. Then I went over to um, New York just to sort of catch up with some people. And while I was there, I um, I got a call from Ross Mollison because um, he had Spiegel Tent in um, in New York, and um, uh, Paul Capsis uh, needed to miss a show. And um, uh, sorry, Paul, he needed to miss more than one. And Meow Meow was able to fill in for um, 10 of the 11 shows. And there was one show that he needed somebody for. And so I got this call and said, Look, I need one. Can you just dive into Spiegel Tent for one night? And I was like, Yeah, no worries. So I did Spiegel Tent for one night. Then the following year, he offered me Spiegel Tent Miami and, and New York again. So for that, um, for for that type of contract it's called a P1 visa which is a, basically a producer specific visa that producer will hire you they will bring you to the country you can work for that producer and that producer only so um, when I was wrapping up that contract I was like oh I wonder if I can extend it so um, I went and saw um, the immigration lawyer that um, you know Caroline and um, Josh Horner had used so and he was like well okay you could get a, a is this whole, George? yeah beautiful George Axed yeah. yeah who's no longer with us yeah. um, and he was like oh, you know I, I, I think we could get you an old one but I think that you know you got a good case for a green card I think we could get you a green card and I was like and I don't know, I went into some form of trance, I handed over $3,000 and walked out of the building and sort of went, 
I guess I just applied for a green card. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I went back to um, Kenya. It took a year for that um, visa to come through, and it's quite an extensive process. And, um, yeah, I was, I was on my birth- it was on my birthday. I was working on the um, coast of uh, north of Mombasa in, in Kenya, and I got a call from George, and he was like, wow, happy birthday. Barack Obama's just given you an, a, a visa. And I was like, oh, my God. So then, you know, you get the visa, um, and then it takes another six months for that to come through. So then I had to pick it up in Sydney. I had to go and, like, you know, do my stamping and everything at the Sydney office and then was able to move to America. And um, I, I, I don't know, you, it, it just seems so unbelievable, like, you know, that this thing that's an impossible dream you know, you've just basically got the next, the golden ticket in your hand to try and step towards that dream. And um, yeah, so (laughs) I got there and I was like, sort of like a kitten in a new home. You know, you walk around an apartment just going, what are they doing here? Like, what an idiot. Um, And then I started, you know, in in New York, they have these things called, um, I mean, people will cynically call them pay to play, which is you can pay to do a class with the casting directors and I can see the cynical side of it, but also for someone like me who didn't really know anybody, I was like 100 bucks to meet a bunch of casting directors, I'm in. So from that I met um, the casting directors of uh, from Tyra Rubin's office who cast um, like Les Mis and mm, Bantam and all those things, yeah. almost everything, and the most wonderful, wonderful, lovely people. And yeah, uh, seven weeks I went to an equity chorus call for Mamma Mia, and a week later I was offered the contract to play Donna Sheridan on the Broadway national tour of Mamma Mia. So that was my first job in, in America. <laughs> be, be, before we get to, to Broadway and the dream, yeah. um, Africa. Oh. <laughs> you just uh, And then I was in Nairobi, and then I was on the Mombasa coast. Um, uh, what were you doing in Africa? How? Well, that, I'm glad you asked. And I also understand that you speak Swahili. So, yes, Very I speak a little Swahili. Yeah, it's a bit rusty now. But no, I had this offer to, um, uh, to a girl I had directed at ATYP was um, script supervisor on a television series in, in Nairobi and she said you need to come and do this you're going to be the art director and I was like no I'm not I've never art directed a television series before and she was like no no you'll be great you'll be great you understand performance you understand directing you understand design um, you just have to put all of those together on a TV set and I'm like no and she said yeah yeah message me message me tomorrow message, like, tell, me, tell me your answer tomorrow and I thought about it overnight and I was like why not why not? So say she yes to everything. Say yeah. yes. Yeah. And so I went, um, I art directed uh, the television series Makatano Junction for two seasons. And um, that, se- that series is edutainment. So every episode has to have a an element of educational content. Um, and so I did that. Then I was invited to go uh, back in design um, from A Whisper, which is a feature film. For which I was nominated for an African Academy Award for production design. <laughs> so I have that. Um, and then, yeah, I just kept going back and, um, and designing either um, television series, documentaries, docudramas, entertainment, educational stuff, um, uh, television series, uh, feature films, you know, raw television, National Geographic, Discovery Channel, 
independent stuff, big um, big commercials like the Nike campaign for for Alejandro. You know, um, what's his name? The that Oscar-winning director guy, um, Alejandro Inarritu Gonzalez, and Shivo filmed it, and like just the most incredible people. And um, yeah, so that was I was there on and off for six years. Wow. Well, there you go. That, that's a that's a, a fabulous uh, chapter for your book. Like your yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. So, so playing Donna Sheridan in yeah. Mamma Mia, uh, doing the national tour. Um, regional theatre is that essential to get a few credits before you'll be taken uh, as a as a as a possible performer on Broadway? D- did you feel mm. that you needed to do that, or this was no, the, the so jobs that were offered? So I think it's, I think it's, mm, it's many, many fingers and many pies in terms of avenues to get to Broadway. I think that's changing now with, um, with so much focus now, thank God, on um, diversity and inclusivity. I think there are a lot of people going straight to Broadway. Um, because the shows are requiring um, different looks and different types of talent. Um, so if you, we go back 10 years when I did Mamma Mia, um, so yeah, I hadn't done any regional regional stuff. And then even with the regional stuff, there are the big out-of-town tryout houses like La Jolla, um, like The Globe, um, and then there are the smaller, you know, more community-based regional places um, which are just small sweet summer stock um, houses and then they close up during the rest of the year so I think it it does depend on you know how you get but then yeah so the other thing with that too is union membership that a lot of those smaller houses if people are not a union member and you need to be a member of American American equity to be um, on Broadway um, then a lot of people will try and build up their weeks in those smaller regional houses and there'll be designated houses across the country that you know will say oh yeah four weeks here you know we give we that will contribute to your equity weeks to get your equity card so and then the bigger houses like La Jolla is where they will take the come from aways the Donna Summer musicals the the musicals that are gonna you know be tested to go you know onto Broadway for the next season so it's slightly different and, and my my trajectory was a little unusual, you know. I, 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 yeah, I mean, to book from an ECC, an Equity Chorus Call, is pretty much unheard of. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't know. I just moved there. They needed someone to play Donna. Um, they reference checked me. They Equity demanded to see my green card to make sure I was able to work. It was really fascinating. They called Andrew Lipper to make sure that I wasn't, you know, that I could do the job. They'd called. Um, couple of contacts at Disney they called Maltby and Shire so to yeah basically reference check and say how was your experience working with Kay was she okay should we hire her and they were like yeah hire her and so it was a it was a slightly different strange kind of thing and yeah I remember when it was all happening I called my friend um Christiane Knoll and I was like what is this what does this mean and she just started laughing she said you're gonna book a national tour Broadway national tour and I was like what no no so and yeah sure enough yeah the next day they said they want to offer you the job of Donna Sheridan on the Broadway national tour so great show to be part of yeah great show to be part of and you know to to have it as an entry into into the American market was you know a really lovely experience there's such a beautiful supportive creative team Um, you know you get 
opening night messages from Benny and Bjorn and Judy Kramer and just, you know, you could be in, you know, some smaller town like in Schenectady or something or Saginaw, Michigan, and you'll get, you know, an opening night message from Benny and Bjorn and you just go, like, just lovely, lovely people, generous, kind, funny, like the most perfect, perfect balance of professionalism and skill and humor and in humility and empathy just fantastic people mm. fantastic people so yeah pete labot pete labot and pete labotte balotte balotte mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. who was pete balotte so pete in Bellotte, relation to donna Summer? yeah so <laughs> pete balotte and uh, giorgio moroda so oh i've heard of him so People on A is the unknown Giorgio Moroder. So the two, the, the big team, music producing team of that era were Giorgio and, and Pete. And they were The all, disco era. The yeah. disco yeah. era. Yeah. yeah, experimenting with, um, you know, the Korg sounds and, uh, you know, figuring out looping. And they started that. And they'd um, heard of Donna in, um, in Germany. And um, they were like, well, you know, maybe because Donna was doing hair in um, in Germany and they were like, well, you know, if you finish rehearsals or something, come over and, um, you know, we can play with some ideas. And that's where they finally found that. And they're like, what do you think of this? And they're like, oh. And then she, they, she started riffing on that. And it, this whole thing built. And then, of course, that track, I think the original track is like 16 minutes or something. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, they were like, well, here's the, they sent that track to America. And, um, you know, it's like, Giorgio and Pete, here's the track. And, of course, all the record producers were just going, you cannot release on the radio a 16-minute track. No one will listen to it. And they were like, well, we just think it's going to work. Like, we're not going to cut it down. Like, tank it if you want. Yeah. And it was released and it just went, people went nuts. DJs would love it. They'd just oh. go outside and have three smokes. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So So, that's people. So, what was the conceit of the of the you know this jukebox musical Mm. about Donna Summer? Was it an all female cast Mm -hmm. that that you were playing a fellow? Yeah, Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. And I think the the creative teams, um, you know, because it's the Jersey Boys creative team, and they had over the years of auditioning people just gone, you know, my God, there's all these great men that we've got roles for. There's all these great women that we've got a few roles for. Like, how can we build a show around, um, you know, women and, um, and, and you know, hiring as many women as we can? And so, you know, Jersey Boys were still running. They had Donna Summer in development. They also had um, Ain't Too Proud in development. And so, yeah, I remember <laughs> I remember getting the, uh, the audition brief and it was, my original edition was for Giorgio Moroda. And I remember going, oh my God, this sounds unreal. Like, oh, Donna Summer, love Donna Summer. This is great, this is great. Uh, please prepare Giorgio Moroda. And I'm like, <laughs> I called my agent. I was like, um, oh, I'd love to. This sounds great. But I just want to check because it's for the role of Giorgio. And they were like, yep, they're, they're cross-casting everything. It's, it's a whole a entire female cast. So, yeah, there was four men. There was four men. There was the pastor, her father, and her manager, and uh, uh, an assistant. So they were the four men. Well, that's the beautiful thing about theatre, isn't it? If you set up um, the playing rules for the the show with the audience from the start, we we suspend our disbelief, don't we? Exactly, um, exactly. And it's like that, you know, I think anything in terms of storytelling you're 100% right if you set the premise it's like if a little kid comes out and says okay we're in a spaceship 
you go, all right, we are, yeah. you know, and I think, you know, the best shows do that when you just go, okay, so, okay, we're, it's a whole ensemble of women, we're going to be doing everything, you got it? Cool, let's go on, you know. So Curious Instead of the Dog does it too, you know. They're just like, I'm the neighbour Mrs. Shearer, you know, and I'm playing an ATM now, you know. Matthew Shepard, the Larry Project, do it too. Yeah. I'm the woman who lives down the road. It's like, okay, yes, yeah, you we are. We know now, we'll go with that. We know, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so was it called uh, uh, Donna Summer? Summer? Just Summer. Summer, the Donna Summer musical. Was yeah. that sadly a, a casualty of the pandemic? No, no, we finished just before the pandemic. So um, it was interesting. I wrapped up Summer at the end of um, uh, end of twenty. Uh, sorry, the very beginning of twenty nineteen. Um, twenty nineteen, I was working on a whole bunch of film stuff, and then um, at the beginning of twenty twenty. I just shot a feature film and we were about to do pickups when they went, hmm, oh, March 2020, no pickups happening, we're not going to be doing any of that. So, no, it wasn't. But I remember I was at the theatre with Andrew Lippa. We went to see, um, we went to see Tina at the Lundfontein where Donna Summer, when we wrapped um, Tina the musical, went into the Lundfontein. And um, we'd had dinner beforehand and we were like, what do you think of this? pandemic thing and I was just like I'm telling you within days everything is going to be shut everything it's about to go down they're like really you think it's that bad and I'm like yep that's my bet that is my bet sure enough so we saw the show on uh the Tuesday the 9th of March and Broadway was shut on the 12th the 11th and the 12th what was your New York experience like during those two years of the the pandemic oh how did you amuse yourself what (gasps) were you fearful Yes, and I, I think I think the introverts did better. So as an introvert, I was like, "Stay at home. This sounds great. It sounds great. How long? Two weeks? Six months? Two? It's great." You know, it was coming out of the pandemic when you had to reassimilate into society again. That I was like, "Oh my god, I don't know how to do this." But yeah, it was it was scary because. Um, Everything was shut down. We were told to stay inside. Um, we would hang out our windows at 7 p.m. every day, like banging pots and pans for the first responders. Um, I mean, three people in my co-op died um, during the pandemic. 1,500 people a day were dying. Um, I have friends. Well, they were setting up malls in Central Park. They, they had, yeah. They had the triage tent in Central Park. They had all the freezer trucks outside the hospitals. They were digging trenches, you know, on the islands to just sort of... Put you know bodies. They had um, the naval ship came up and parked at, at the pier at Forty Fourth Street. The Javits Center, which is like the big convention center down in in Darling Harbour, that was converted by the military into a military hospital. It was like crazy. And I remember the first time I ever went out. I went down Midtown, and um, it was one fifty p.m. on a Saturday. Not a soul in Times Square. All the theaters were boarded up with plywood. There was like two sad people in, in Times Square going pamphlet or I'm doing a dance so I don't know who you're dancing for because there's no one here this is a zombie apocalypse like yeah it was it was very very strange the, the soup people weren't even there the soup people were the mind Grover you the... they could have been fine because they had a mask on <laughs> like, but yeah it was it was really strange because nobody knew what it was and the high density of, of Manhattan really felt it and I remember you know we'd be messaging with people in Australia and they're like but there's no cases in Australia or Melbourne's been shut down but you know you know like New York it was like this and you were stuck in it yeah yeah it was bad are you still working on take your seats 
documentary? Yeah, so I've got Take Your Seeds. Um, so that's got to be, now that everything's open again, we've got to, um, we've got to do follow-up interviews for that. And um, yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting piece because, I mean, talking to those performers and the, like in, like talking to Tony Magna, who was in the room um, when they, they knew the announcement was coming from, from Cuomo as to what was going to happen with the theatres. And they were at the Broadway League and they were like literally there just going, okay. And then it was announced all Broadway theatres. At 3pm it was announced that all Broadway theatres would shut at 5. So they all just split. They all ran from the from the drama league to um, all you know their respective Broadway theaters. Started printing out all the notes. So you know started calling all the cast members. You know people were on the like the bus or the train coming into Manhattan when they were getting messages going, no, and they're just going okay, turn around. I guess I, like just people not knowing people going um, like to physiotherapy appointments and just going. I guess I'll keep going and having physio and getting there and everybody just being there just going well. I don't know but the saddest thing I was having coffee with a friend on 47th Street I finished coffee with her and I walked up because um, I had physiotherapy that day too and it was the opening night of six that day and I saw the stage door of six was open with the stage door guy talking to the florist guy who had all the bouquets of flowers for all the cast for their opening night bouquets from the producers and the two of them just going I, I don't know um done you know and it was just the strangest most surreal thing to see these two people like just going we don't know what to do there's no opening night and you thanks for the flowers but I, I don't know take them back I, I don't know well preparing this documentary you must have unearthed yeah. lots of fascinating stories like that yeah yeah um, and people too like uh, there was a couple of, of uh, graduates that I spoke to and they were like we just graduated we like we don't know now, like, we're at peak fitness now. Like, and that sounds crazy, like at 23 to just say, maybe this is it. Maybe I'll never book a job. Maybe I'll never have another audition, get a call back. Maybe I'll never work on Broadway, book a TV series. Maybe, maybe all this hard work to get to this peak elite fitness level. We don't know how long, it, it, we don't know. I don't, he said, I don't know what my fitness level will be like in in two years like I, I don't know and, and so many people leaving the industry too well, and, yeah. that, and that's the other side is other people had babies people left the city people just went I'm good I'm out you know I've had my time I'm, I'm good I won't do it anymore and and businesses you know I, I was reading a story about the um, the costume manufacturer mm -hmm. who looked like going bust and if they did there would be no one left to, to yeah. make or yep. one less house left to make make the costumes yeah, yeah. Right. yeah yeah yeah, like all the wig makers or the... Like, there's such specialty bespoke industries in Manhattan that... And that, I mean, they've got, like, floors of buildings that build all the costumes, that build all the wigs, that build all the shoes. Like, like what are they? What else can I do? Like, I don't know. And yet it was all put on pause for, like, two years. And it's coming back now, but, you know, it's a really odd thing. And even... Um, even the stage managers we were talking to, they, they were just like, well, we got the call, we had to go into the theatre, and one of the, they had to, they told people that to take everything for two weeks, you know, that was, that was the time frame at that minute, two weeks. So, you know, maybe don't leave sandwiches in the dressing room, take all that, but people, you know, then had to go back later to just go, well, my makeup's still there, or, you know, my, I've got shoes there, or training equipment there. So they were allowed back in, but they're talking about 
One was leaving the ghost light on the stage and just leaving the space. But the other big thing was because the theatres are so old and the piping systems are so old in New York, there's all the water, they had to keep working out how they were going to keep filtering water through the pipes and not let it go stagnant while no water was going through the pipes for those two weeks, six months, years. Because otherwise the theatres all would have had to be pulled down or every single pipe in every single theatre would have had to be redone because it just poisonous... (laughs) Well, I heard stories of, of locally, you know, cinemas um, who were dark for, mm. for long periods of time began to be uh, infested with, with mice and, and rats who came out to sort of look for, for popcorn pieces <laughs> and all that sort of thing because, you know, there was no movement in yeah. that space for a yeah. long time. So 100%. they had to repair seats and mm-hmm. chairs. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, the rats in New York are the size of this table, so they were just like, this is ours now. (laughs) (laughs) They were just going to eat whoever entered the building. But, yeah, interesting things you don't even think about because you just go, oh, gosh, now now that we're not using the taps and the air conditioning systems, that creates a whole other ball game. And then when we reopen again and we've got people with masks and, you know, trying to prevent people from getting COVID... Like, we're going to blast these old air conditioning systems and <laughs> kill everybody with, I don't know, with some sort of botulism or something, I don't know. Well, I look forward to seeing your doco, uh, Take Your Seats. Take Your Seats, yeah. 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 Well, Kate Tuckerman, um, you'll be delighted that I've awarded you full marks for your specialist subject, Kate Tuckerman. <laughs> I was worried. I was like, what if I get things wrong? No, I, th- I think you've done, done really, really well. Um, and how fortuitous to run into you at the Sydney Theatre yeah. Awards and um, say, hey, let's have a chat. I know. I, I was like, oh, I feel like I've won a gold star. It's such a, a lovely, lovely invitation, a lovely honour. So oh, you know, thank part you of the so stage much. as alumni. Like, oh. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your stay and um, and travel back safely yeah. to uh, NYC. We'll go to Singapore first to, to direct the Adams family and then um, then back to NYC. Is that at um, LaSalle? It or is. It is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so I'll be out there for two months with the, with the students up there. And it's, it, I mean, talking about the pandemic, it's the first time. It's, they've been able to do small presentations and stuff, but this, as third years, will be their big performance as um as musical theater graduates because everything's been shut down because of the pandemic oh that's wonderful um and you're no doubt aware that you know our dear friend dennis follington from Wapa set up the course i am i'm very 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 aware yeah yeah and i i'd I'd been up there working on some stuff um just after dennis had finished and tony mcgill had taken over and um so and i've been up there since when um, Tony McGill was running it to direct Once on This Island and another big like, cabaret show. And then this time I'll go back again to do The Adams Family. Yeah. Well, good luck. Thanks. Thanks, Kay. Ah! <laughs> Kay is a constant source of inspiration and a vibrant example of not letting grass grow under one's feet. Great to see you, Kay, and let's hope it's not so long between drinks next time. Stage's next featured guest is Angela Ayres, known for a string of musical triumphs such as A Chorus Line, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Guys and Dolls, Jerry's Girls and Menopause the Musical, as well as extensive singing credits on stage and television throughout Australia and New Zealand. She's recently turned her hand to writing and has just launched her first children's book titled Two Little Kiwi Birds. We discuss this new direction along with revisiting her sojourns in musical theatre across several decades. 
Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.